All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening... I'm, I'm doing the whole show in Slugworth voice. Ah, okay. Cool. Do you want to do the first time listening in Slugworth voice? If this is your first time listening, get get me a gobstopper. Get me a go- and sell it to me for money. And you'll feel bad because you've committed moral faux pas. You will you will be looking back onto a thing that you did retrospectively and getting introspective about how bad you feel. Yes, that was that was genius. We have one guest that is Slugworth, um, but we have another guest, which is James Lott Jr. <laughs> It's me. I'm back, bitches. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. No, I love you guys. I love coming on your show. It's been a while, but I love coming on the show. So yeah. thanks for having me back. We missed you. Uh, and we're so glad that we could have you on in our final days where we say goodbye. Yes. Uh, if you if you are, though, uh, just joining us as we uh, saunter towards our grand exit, uh, what, what, what do uh, we do here, Tari, if this is your first time listening? We take the media that we've enjoyed, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, walker bars, and we <laughs> share those with each other uh, in hopes that it builds you up and in turn it builds us up, etc. We're the retrospective that's introspective. Pew, 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 pew. Don't forget Ka-chow. the name. Everlasting pod stopper. <laughs> oh. That's what that's what the movie Slugworth, I think, was was missing. Was just a real obnoxious, over the top, pointed chuckle. Like he just tickles himself uh, uh, profoundly and deeply. Speaking of uh, Slugworth, what are we talking about today, guys? I, I just plopped down in front of a mic. I don't really know what's happening. I just thought it would be a fun day to talk like that. Well, today we're talking about the 1971 adaptation of the Roald Dahl film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, starring Gene Wilder, Jack Albertson, Peter Ostrom, Roy Kinner. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm so happy. I, I know so much. I mean, one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yes. If someone hasn't seen it, and uh, they were like, what's the deal with this movie? Can you pitch it to them? Uh, you know, here's what's funny. So I'm, I'm a big Roald Dahl fan. His his books, which was originally the Charlie and Chocolate Factory, of course, uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, James and the Giant Peach, BFG. They're all, they're all these stories that are rooted in realism, rooted in family, rooted in relationships. There is always some kind of twist, and there's a lesson in each of these things. There's always a lesson. And this film actually has a great positive lesson to it at the end. It's a really great lesson throughout the whole movie. It's, there has, there's excitement. There's action. There's humor. Um, there's silliness. Plus, just visually, it's 1971. Uh, it's beautiful. I mean, I think it's like the way it's shot and just seeing the whole the factory. Um, it's a, it's a, it takes you on a, it takes you on a journey. I think 
adults and kids alike will be entertained by this film. Yeah, I'd agree. I feel like I had a different experience watching it as a child than I did as a as an adult now. There's a richer context. Like I think when oh. you're younger, you kind of enjoy the the whimsicality of it and all the strange crazy visuals and you want you see yourself as Charlie, but as you get older, you see a lot of the deeper themes and you also like I think in a way especially by the end some people may even see themselves as the Willy Wonka character uh which we will <laughs> totally I I mean I think it's a valid thing you laugh like Lex have you had you seen this is this in your cultural lexicon um well so no i laugh because i think i had a very similar experience now uh in terms of my relationship with this movie i very much grew up with this movie i've seen this thing more times than i can count and i have a great deal of it very uh firmly internalized but i did i hadn't seen it in many many years and i did to uh, end up having a different kind of experience with it. Obviously, uh, I can perceive more layers. Obviously, yes, I am at an age now where I am starting to relate to some of the older characters more. Than, I mean, shit, I'm, I'm relating to Grandpa Joe even more than I'm relating to some of the kids and stuff. Um, but I laugh because on the one hand, yes, I actually see ways in which I can relate surprisingly directly to the Wonka character Having said that, I laugh because the Wonka character, as depicted, is still, you know, uh, arguably a narcissistic sociopath who delights in luring children into his murder factory to dispose of them. I disagree. Having seen it as an adult, I, I mean, he's there, there are a lot of issues with the Wonka character. I don't think that his explicit purpose was to do murder factory stuff. I think he is willing to let fools be fools. It's the uh, the Bill Murray thing. I don't suffer fools. <laughs> I suppose that whole thing. Yes, and it's you can and we can, we'll get more into this when we talk spoilers. But I do think you know in the certainly uh, everybody's familiar with uh, the Tim Burton version as well, which is a little bit closer to the book. In that version, it does seem a little bit more like Wonka is intentionally murdering these children, um, whereas. Yes, in this version, this Wonka is content to allow it to happen. But you know full well going in that a lot of these kids might end up, uh, uh, let's say, hoisting themselves on their own petard in quite severe fashions. That's all I'm saying. Like, granted, maybe not. It's, it's their parents' job to intervene, perhaps more than Mr. Wonka's. But, uh, you know, he does. He has them uh, waive all liability and shit like that because he knows things can go terribly awry. Right. And so, James, uh, when we brought up the idea of goodbye, halcyon days as a theme for this month, you were like, gotta be Wonka, gotta be the chocolate factory. <laughs> uh, so what, made, what about this movie made you feel like it really encapsulated this theme? Good question. The thing is, Charlie and Willy Wonka both are trying to leave their past behind to move to other things. I mean, essentially, Willie wants to retire, so to speak. He doesn't use those words or anything in the film, but it's like basically he's trying to move on from what he's known this whole time to go on to something else. And Charlie comes from a really poor background. You know, I always, I always have that picture of the grandparents sleeping in the same bed. They have the two on one side, two on the other. It was a small house. Um, and Charlie just wants to make something a life better for his family. 
um, and not live the way he's been living. I mean, he just he wants to live a different way. So I feel like the theme of saying goodbye, they both want to say goodbye to something and hello to something new. Um, so I feel like they want to say goodbye to what, what what's was. I like that. Uh, yeah, I agree. And definitely have like, there are like five very specific images that you will conjure up when you think of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And that bed is <laughs> definitely one of them. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Is that funny? I always remember that. It's like they both, so both sets of grandparents right. sleep in the same bed, but they got the two on this side and two. Like it just, I just, it just sticks with you. That huge bed uh, sticks with me. Um, but yeah, I think it does represent of leaving behind what they once knew because they're because their their lives, you know, as we get into it further, their lives were changed. Yeah. Both of them. Were okay. Um, so before we get to the spoiler section, I just wanted to talk about a really interesting factoid that I discovered as I was, uh, researching this movie, which is that essentially it, (laughs) it was a big commercial for a, for chocolate Uh (laughs) that, uh, Quaker Oats, I think it was, uh, was going to come out with, and then they, they messed it up. And so the the chocolate itself never became popular, but the movie itself became <laughs> uh, became wildly known, which I think is crazy. Yeah, well, it's one of the few movies that was produced by a candy company, basically, essentially a chocolate company. But essentially, it was done by a studio, but it was basically financed by them. Right. If I'm correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was a huge hit. It's crazy because like that became a model for media making like in the i want to say late 70s or or like through the 80s where they were like yo we're gonna make some cartoons so people can buy toys and it like and it also feels like a i would say a a slight variation on what lucas did which it was to be like yo i don't need uh i don't need back end but i'm gonna buy all the merchandise rights it's like you you're tying in your commerce with your media and and hoping that it turns out well but you just you you know you you want that money right it's all it's all about that money my thing is it's no different when soap opera started it was soap companies wanting to sell to churches to housewives. That's literally how the name soap opera came from. It was like soap. Oh. Sell soap products. They called them audio operas because they're like they're dramas and things like that. So soap opera. And literally they literally started Procter and Gamble, a lot of the places they started by selling soap products to housewives. And that's where soap operas they started out as 15 minute shows, really quick every day. Only during the week when housewives were at home, while their husbands were at work, and yeah. they would say, "I want to buy Tide. I want to buy Zest. I want to buy." And then, and all through and through the eighties, it was um, Procter and Gamble and a bunch of other places that were doing all kinds of product placement, Kleenex on all the soap shows. But that's how soap operas started. So that to me is no different. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Well, and it's interesting too, like in terms of sort of bigger budget film entertainment, like Tari, like you were sort of getting at it kind of became more and more the norm but it's interesting that it was happening the way it was at this time right because this thing came out in 71 so while in terms of the behind the scenes and how this thing was getting uh financed right like where that money was coming from and how you need to tie it into product at the same time 
right then is when sort of the old studio system was crumbling and you had the rise of the new Hollywood and you had a lot more freedom for filmmakers to do things that were a little more weird or experimental or avant-garde. And so I think it's really fascinating how this movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, sort of has a foot in both worlds. Because while in terms of the the sort of money pipeline and uh, that end of production was very much sort of corporatized uh, or at least sort of in that, you know, angled in that direction, something that we'd see more and more of, this is also a super weird psychedelic borderline experimental thing you know what i mean like the the everybody knows the sequence in the boat tunnel the sort of freaky dark psychedelic sequence in the boat tunnel like that's a really fucking out there sequence to have in what is ostensibly a children's movie um there are a couple of jokes in this thing that are actually quite dark um in a way that like never really hit me in the same way before. Um, So I think it's really interesting that this movie sort of straddles that line. But of course, you talk about how the the movie took off in a way that the candy bars never could. I mean, that, of course, I think has a certain amount to do with with some of the details that yeah you don't necessarily get from a bar of chocolate for example like the the soundtrack to this thing is absolutely iconic. Like even if you've never seen the movie or read the book, you've heard Candy man, I want right? the world. I want the whole world. <laughs> yes, I want the locket all up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. Give it to me now. Right, like you've heard this music and these these songs, especially if you grew up with these songs. I guarantee you, like you may have convinced yourself that these songs have long passed from your memory, but. I, I guarantee if you're listening to this show and you just heard James rattle off a couple bars of that song, I guarantee if you grew up with this movie, all of a sudden your brain is now generating the rest of the lyrics to that song. Um, because because these things, they just they stick and they had such an interesting sort of immediate impact. And then, of course, like Candyman, for example, like went on to be recorded by, I think, like Sammy Davis Jr. and a bunch of other people. But then on top of the music, you have now I'm not going to say best because how do you quantify something like that but certainly by a substantial margin one of my favorite all-time favorite screen performances of all time and it is of course uh, gene wilder as willy wonka and like we'll, we'll talk about sort of the the elements of this performance that i think are truly truly genius as we dig into the plot a little bit more and um sort of the things that i picked up on this time that i hadn't necessarily keyed into in the past but uh yeah i mean like Holy shit. Like, and it happens every time I watch this movie, every time I come back to it after a number of years thinking, oh, I've seen this. I know what to expect. I'm not going to be surprised by this movie. I will key into just a tiny, tiny, tiny little nuanced moment, just a tiny, almost imperceptible choice Gene Wilder makes in a scene. And I'll go, holy shit. Like, this is my my brain is being ripped into ribbons and stuff. So uh, as a child of that time, I was three years old when it came out. I saw it a few years after that. So I remember, I remember five years seeing this movie five or six. My parents are crazy. Um, I see it throughout my childhood in the 70s. Children's, I'll say quotes, children's films in the 70s were very interesting because a lot of my childhood memories of, of a lot of the, of the movies like the Escape to Witch Mountain series, Candle Shoe with Jodie Foster. We The 70s were a weird time. They talked to us like little people, like we were mm-hmm. little adults. They didn't make these cutesy, cutesy little films that came in the 80s and not, it came later. A lot of the films that were popular for children at the time um, were very much steeped in like realism. I mean, even my Saturday morning cartoon, well, not cartoons, my Saturday morning television with H.R. Puffin stuff and Bugaloos <laughs> and, and Land of the Lost. There was all these messages. And the, and the kids, see, the kids were bad. We were told that these kids deserve what they got. And that's what this film talks about also. But a lot of <laughs> children's television, it was like, and movies, it was like, well, when you do bad, then this was what happens to you. 
Um, so they were kind of trying to tell us, don't do bad, you know, don't, you know, don't do this. And this might happen to you. So childhood was very, I mean, there, there's, you know, movies like Paper Moon or Taxi Driver where they were like, you know, Jodie Foster was 13 and Tatum, and Tatum O'Neill was 10. And they were doing these roles. They were, they were alongside adults. Yep. They got these roles that were just so, you know, were amazing. Or James at 15, which was a TV show. Was big. I mean, there's a lot. I remember that 70s of being this kind of revolutionary time, especially when it came to children's. And even teenage stuff was very, very different. Later, it got more sanitized. And of course, I don't mind so much. I love my John Hughes movies in the 80s. That was my time period. Um, But in the 70s, this film fits right into that narrative of kind of like, we're just going to give it to you. We're all probably smoking weed or or or, you know doing (laughs) mushrooms back then. And you know, and the the psychedelics are in there. I mean, I would I watch this and then I watched Tommy. So I was like, my parents were crazy. We watched the the back to back. It was like. Both, both kind of crazy. Both operas. Both kind of have stories about a pinball rhythm. It's like so. It's kind of like it all fits. It all to me, this movie fits that time period. So you're right. When I, as an adult, I see it much differently now than I saw it. Yeah, I feel like we can't go too much further without really diving into right. the intricacies of the plot and the spoilers and stuff. So I'm going to start lowering that spoiler wall. Tuka 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 tuka. Um, while I'm doing so, uh, just to remind you that we love reviews and ratings and that we read them here on the show. So if you go on to the Apple podcast app, leave us a rating, a review, uh, it helps other people find the show, helps us get to the top of the charts and helps us feel good on the inside in a time when everything's going terribly on the outside. <laughs> Please do so, and we will come back with Buster Recap. We're going to talk about the themes. We're going to talk about the plot. We're going to talk about the wonderful performances and other stuff. Racism. So make sure (laughs) to join us after the break. All right, we are back. And you know what time it is. It's time to Buster Recap. That was a giant chocolate gun. It, it shot chocolate all <laughs> over the place. Ooh, yeah. Fired a, fired Augustus up the pipe. Hell yeah. Oh, you, you mm. know, old young Charlie, how bullets work. Mm. So, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, we spend the first 40 minutes or so hanging out with Charlie. This really, like, well-meaning, uh, hard-working kid who lives with his grandparents and his mom. His dad is dead. And uh, he goes to school and his teacher is mean and he has a, a just a like, well, not a well-paying, but he has a paying paper route. Like he's really trying to support his family, tries to go out of his way to be the best person that he can be. Uh, and he walks past a candy shop where the candy guy is singing songs and throwing candy at people and he doesn't go in and he's like no no candy for me now i have to work and you're like oh charlie i'm rooting for you it's like his his save the cat moment over and over he just keeps saving the cat uh and so uh it's revealed that this eccentric 
candy maker who has never been seen outside of his own factory is having a contest and he's offering five people the chance to go into his his place his his factory and maybe get a lifetime supply of chocolate Ooh, maybe you sell the chocolate maybe you <laughs> die of diabetes who knows you want that chocolate and while uh he is really desiring to win this contest again he doesn't have a lot of money he's helping support his family his mom works his dad's dead so like there's no income except for what his mom does and what he does so like he can't go out there just buying chocolate all willy-nilly so you know he's he's trying his best and time is passing by and we get a lot of these fun little vignettes where people are going crazy for this chocolate and you know we we get to experience all the hysteria that it's hidden all around the world except africa and south america and so uh we finally get our first four people we got veruca salt we got augustus goop we got mike tv and we got one other person whose name i don't remember and it doesn't matter because they're <laughs> dead meat um violet beauregard yeah violet. Yeah, yeah, yeah violet's turning violet blueberry girl so uh we we get those four and then we get a fake one and everyone's like oh i guess it's over and then charlie now uh, discouraged, buys himself one chocolate bar to make himself feel better. Really indulging in that, like, that food dopamine, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and it turns out, oh, schnuckies, he got the golden ticket. Uh, so he runs home, and his, his uncle, who has been in a bed for a long time, is like, hey, guys, guess what? I can walk, and I've, I, I could have been able to work, but you know what? I'm going to leave the house for this. Fuck Charlie's mom. Uh, so then uh, Charlie and his his grandpa go to the factory, and so many hijinks ensue. They go into a they meet Wonka, and he's he's a weird guy. He's so mysterious. Does he have a limp? No, he doesn't. Does he does he does his factory go in a linear fashion? No, it's like <laughs> IKEA. It just like goes in all these different directions, and you're like, am I lost? And the answer is yes. And so uh, as they're going through, each kid partakes in some mischievous behavior, leading to their downfall. It's their own actions that lead to their downfall. They're always like, ooh, what did Wonka say? Who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. And so then Augustus gets sucked up a chocolate tube and Violet tries an experiment and gets turned into a blueberry. Oh, Veruca Salt wants a, wants a goose that lo lays a golden egg. Well, she was a bad egg. And... Oh man, Mike TV, he just wanted to be on TV, and now he's a little, little tiny guy. He's a little, little, little itty bitty tiny guy, uh, which sucks for him, probably. Who knows? Uh, I guess he'll be at the mercy of his mother for his whole life. So, sad. <laughs> and <laughs> Charlie ends up being the last person, and uh, Wonka's like, hey, get, get out. And he, him and his grandpa is like, hey, we were the last ones. We want that chocolate. And he's like, ah, uh, if you didn't read the contract, you broke my rules by using fizzy liquid. And they're like, oh, you piece of shit. You're right. But like, you're still a piece of shit. And so Charlie, in an act of true integrity, gives the everlasting gobstopper everlasting gobstopper 
back to Willy Wonka, despite having gotten a very large sum uh, offered to him that would get his whole family out of debt. It was like $10,000. And in, in 1971, that's like a million dollars. I don't know how inflation works, but it's a lot of money. But he gives it back to Wonka, who has given him no reason to show such integrity. And then Wonka's like, ha ha! You've passed my test, and you are now my heir. Or woo goo 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 goo. Come on, my elevator. And they do. They go on the elevator, and uh, Charlie becomes the next heir to the Wonka factory. And that's Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Pew 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 pew. So now that we are past the spoiler wall, um, let's let's talk about the movie in general. In that, like, I like. The like usually I think we would do like a what's the difference and I think we'll do like a, a baby version of that and that like you James said you had you read the book or were you just a fan of like Roald Dahl's general uh, oeuvre of content that he made um, I read it I read his books and I took a lot there there's a book called D for Dahl D A H L that's good it gives you a whole synopsis of everything he does it's really good to give an idea um I read like I said I read his books I'm a voracious reader as a kid. My parents were readers, and my, my family all read. And so I read his books and then saw the movies. So, yeah, so I liked the book. And the book was much darker, a little more darker. But, like I said, the Tim Burton version was a little more like the book. You know, I didn't like that version. I thought yeah. it was horrible. Um, but I did like the, the, the original is what I liked. Having seen this one, I mean, because they're they're pretty different. Like, in the, in the book, they're very there's no, like, Slugworth subplot and a lot of the, the, like, you know, some of the kids' demises are different and things of that sort. Um, so going in, did you see this in the theater or did you, uh, see it at home? No, we, there, there was no home to see it in because we were, it was back in the seventies. So we saw it in the theater. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So like watching it in the theater, do, did you like the changes? Were you disappointed? Like what was your feeling going well, in? No, again, my top five movies of all time. So, I mean, I just, I, for some reason I, I connected with it right away. And it's something I said earlier that was for me, I thought of myself as one of the kids. So yeah. I, I felt like I was, I was I was poor. I came from a big family. I was, I was Charlie. So that was like I wanted to you know relate to him. I used to relate. I love the visuals and I just I love the songs. I love the Loompas. and I mean as a kid I just immediately loved it immediately. Just immediately loved it and saw it many times in the theater and I saw it later on you know on TV and stuff. But I immediately loved it and it was it could, I just connected with it so much. It was, it was a a story of of hope. It's a story of triumph. It's a story of having some fun, but they're doing the right thing and, and seeing all the other characters kind of go down. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to watch. I mean, it was, it was just a fun movie. I mean, I, I loved it immediately the moment I saw it. Okay. Was there like a, a specific moment where you're like eyes widen and you were like, this is my favorite thing. Good question. I don't think I have that, but I just, I just, I think it just in general. I mean, I loved it. Just watching Charlie go through the whole process, being sad when he didn't get the ticket. It was a fake thing, and then when he got the ticket, I was happy for him. I mean, yeah. I, I, I just sang the part. It's my favorite. It's my favorite song of the whole film. It's the Ruka Salt thing, um, which later, folks, became a '90s rock group. They took it after that name, uh, Ruka Salt. <laughs> it's a song called Seether. So. Um, but anyway, so I loved, I loved her thing because she was such a brat. And she was yeah. so bratty, but her song was so funny. And the whole thing, I just love the golden egg thing. I love the whole, that was a scene that I think I just, it just got me. And then with, and then of course, you no know, Violet Beauregard, you know, Violet's turning Violet. And the whole thing, that was kind of funny. 
uh, Mike TV. I, I liked all the, so I guess basically I have a dark sense of humor and I liked all the kids' different let goes, we'll call them. Because they're okay. They didn't die. They're okay. So they just got, they just were taken somewhere else. Um, right. But Mike TV, when he got, you know, became particles, I thought it was so cool. Um, I mean, I just, all that. I mean, I just, I think, I think each of the kids' things really sealed it for me. I mean, you're talking yeah. to a person whose other favorite movie is Heather's. So I was like, I have a dark sense of humor. I like dark, I like dark humor that's based in something real. Okay. And it was also Gene Wilder's performance. I mean, Gene Wilder should have gotten an Oscar nomination and win for this performance, I, I think. I think it was, yeah, we'll talk about it in more deeper, but just his performance, especially at the end. That performance at the end stands head and shoulders above. Yeah. Why don't we talk Amy. about Gene Wilder's performance? Because I feel like his presence in this movie is really what carries us. Like him and uh, the kid who plays Charlie, those are the two main driving forces throughout the movie. Like the movie has a lot of fun, whimsical characters, and like you understand who those characters are and why they are the way they are and like they even managed to get a lot of characterization in the little vignettes but really i think that gene wilder's performance is really what sells the movie yes there's something that i absolutely love that i i read uh when i was sort of looking into the movie a little bit more is that he wasn't the first person they went to i think they actually looked at at one point i think they were looking at literally every member of monty python um but uh when he said he would do it. I think his one big condition was the way his character enters the movie. That was, I think, something that Wilder came up with himself, where he's kind of uh, limping in and everybody's like, oh my God, he's, he's, he's crippled and everybody goes deathly silent. And then with his cane, you know, he's hobbling along and then the cane gets stuck. He suddenly realizes he doesn't have it. He falls forward and then tumbles into a somersault, pops right back up to great applause because from that moment on, nobody will know whether I'm lying or telling the truth. And I think that's absolutely fucking genius because that is then, yeah, the prism through which we view the entire fucking character. And that was something that he brought to it. Yes. And, 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 and the thing at the end, that speech, when he goes off on Charlie, you feel so bad for Charlie. You feel so bad. And it's like, because G. Wilder's known for his comedy. I mean, he's known, I mean, later on, obviously, all those Silver Street movies, he became known as comedy. It's like, no, this man can do drama, too. He wasn't, he didn't mm -hmm. do much drama, but he can. And that, and that scene, and when Charlie just puts over, just puts the, the gobstopper on the table, and starts to walk off, and he changes his, and I mean, those acting choices, that, that scene, it's just like, oh my god, he's so, it's so, it, it makes such an impression on me as a kid, that stuck with me as an adult watching it, I'm like, he just, I mean, he went from zero to a hundred back to zero again in that whole scene, and it was just like, brilliance to me. Right. It's it's an instantly iconic performance, and it is so to uh, Gene Wilder's credit, but also you know to the credit of uh, director Mel Stewart and uh, you know the the writers who like Roald Dahl is credited on the screenplay for this movie yeah. too. That that the character is so um, to this day is as iconic as he is, especially when you know like Tari when you were busting a recap, we you mentioned that the first forty some odd minutes is just setting up who these characters are and spending mm -hmm. time with the Bucket family. Wonka does not enter the movie nope. till the 45 minute mark. Like something that really fucking blew my mind this time was the the sort of wildly efficient pacing of this thing. You don't notice that you don't get to Wonka for about 45 minutes and you really don't notice that you only spend about an hour in the factory itself because they managed to cram so dang much stories, so many different set pieces into that time. But taking that 
that 45 minutes and just spending it with with Charlie and as he sort of discovers that these other kids are winning and they're getting the thing that he so desperately wants, um, you really kind of live in their, um, their circumstance with them. And so every moment, like James, like this is kind of what you were getting at, like all of the loads you feel right. Like that moment, um, it, this hit me so hard this time, the moment where, uh, Grandpa Joe snuck uh, a little money to get an extra candy bar and they open it together, uh, you know, hoping, you know, maybe there'll be a ticket in there. There's not. And there's that moment where, you know, Charlie's heart just breaks again. And he says, you know, I bet uh, the the golden ticket makes the chocolate taste terrible. It's devastating. And so when they find that ticket, you know what I mean? And like Grandpa Joe gets up uh, off the bed uh, for the first time in 20 years and is dancing and singing because he's so elated. You feel the the profundity of that high with them. It doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense that this dude can dance like that after 20 years. Like after 20 years, he'd be, it'd be like RoboCop three. It'd be like, <laughs> why is he on the ground so much? Get him up. Uh, but, but like you feel it, you know what I mean? And like, if you would kind of rushed through some of that material, you wouldn't have been able to take that emotional journey with them. But then on top of that, you know, Gene Wilder kind of gets, I think what a lot of actors dream of, not just, you know, the role is written throughout the entire movie, but in terms of the entrance he gets right and not just what he added to it himself but the fact that you spend the first 45 minutes of this movie going like "Ooh, willy wonka Ooh, willy wonka's so mysterious oh like wonka's opening his factory again oh holy shit and you build and you build and you build and you build and then you introduce wonka and it's this amazing fucking movie star entrance and then like going back to through a prism that then makes everything he does and says completely suspect, but it has to do with structure and with pacing that they were able to pull it off the way that they did. And it's a really impressive high wire act because in a weaker movie, you'd be sitting there for the first hour going, yeah, but where's the chocolate factory? (laughs) Why am I, why are we hanging out in this little house? You know? And I just find that really impressive. So there is a word, which I'm blanking out right now. Um, where you think you've seen something that's not there. It's a, it's an illusion of some sort. I, I'm, it's a memory illusion. I can't remember the, I wish I could remember the name of the word. Um, it's that whole thing of Sally Field saying, you like me, you really like me. She doesn't even say that. She says something similar to that in her Oscar speech that's famous. Oh, you mean like um, like the Mandela effect? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I couldn't get, I couldn't get it out. Okay, so I have a lot of friends who, like you, were like, wait a minute, he's not in the whole film. I thought he was in the whole film. Like, no. It reminds me of Friday, Friday the 13th, the first one. Where oh. Jason doesn't show up. I mean, the mother kills everybody. The Jason uh-huh. does not show up until the very, 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 very end of the water. Right. That's the only time he shows up. But you think he's in that film the whole time. Like, you just, you just think, like, no, he doesn't show up to the end. There's part two where he starts killing people. Um, that reminds me of this film. It's like, you forget that, yeah, for a half, for a half the film, he's not in the, he's not in the movie. He, doesn't, he does not show up. He's talked about. It's everything he's talking about. But he's not coming. But he comes in so powerfully. And his character, you're right, there is, this, there is this kind of fine line where it could have been heavy caricature, um, and it didn't. He didn't do that. Thank God it didn't work out that way. It could have been a little too winky, and he didn't do that either. There were just enough winks in it that was like, oh, okay. Um, but he played it straight, so to speak. I mean, like, he played it in a way that was like, yeah, there's some cheeky moments, but he was serious about getting through this whole chore. That was the mm-hmm. whole point. He wanted to find somebody worthy to take over the factory. And he was really looking at these children and seeing which ones. I think he knew already who he wanted and who was going to do it, but he had to see him go through the journey to make it there. Right. All of that was just to say that I kind of, it's like weird. It's like, no, he doesn't show up till later in the film, but he makes such a big splash 
that you think he's in the movie the yeah. whole time. In the musical version of this story, he actually, like, Willy Wonka is the hatchet sales, like, in, in this movie, it's a hatchet salesman, but is, is actually the one who accosts Charlie outside of the the factory at the beginning of the movie. And so there's like a headcanon that a lot of people have that like he had orchestrated Charlie getting it, Charlie being like the the final girl. But I like the idea that it could have been any of these kids and he allowed them time to like size them up. And I, I do like that kind of what you guys were getting at that at that ending moment with Gene Wilder sitting in his office because he's so disappointed that everyone broke the rules and, and that like, now he either has to figure out what his next move is, or he he's now realizing he can never retire. He's like it's all these things that you can feel going through his mind in terms of figuring out what to do next. And then he gets surprised by this moment. And I think, like you said, James, it's very uh, it's very heartwarming and also very dramatic. I think that's when I was talking about relating to Wonka. It's that piece, this idea of really trying to put your faith in in these people and not ultimately them disappointing you, but like having that disappointment, but ultimately having someone show you the good in people. And I think that is a really nice, I would say, message for this movie. Very much so. It's something you talk about that last scene, right? And we could talk about how amazing the performance is and how, you know, what it says about where Wonka has gotten and sort of what this entire exercise has meant for him. But also, too, like, this is an incredible movie from a production design standpoint. And that the production design in that office basically says everything about who Wonka is, right? Because you come into that room and everything is in half, right? Everything is split directly down the center. And that's that's Wonka, right? Like uh, Wonka's the guy who he is. He's the genius, mad inventor whose work is beloved and celebrated all over the world. He has this this wonderland that is his that he he lives in and he runs, and nobody is there to spoil it. And it's just him and the Oompa Loompas making these confections, making the world happy. But he has no legacy. He has no, nobody to share that with. You know, when he's gone everything that he's built, it's, it's falls apart, right? Somebody at best, somebody might come in and sort of derail the whole thing by corporatizing it or by doing that, whatever. The point is he's not complete until he has somebody that he can leave this to. And that in so doing means that it will outlive him, but that everything he built, it means something, it matters, right? And like, that's kind of what it's been for him the entire time. Like, let's make what I did matter beyond just the one guy, which I think is, uh, especially the older I get, I find insanely compelling, but also dude's insane. And the, le- the degrees to which he goes to ensure that this happens are fascinating. And it's fascinating to look at what he does say in the book versus what he does in the movie. So, so Tari, uh, you said the, the Tinker character is actually Wonka in disguise in the book. Now I didn't remember that necessarily. It's been a really long time since I read the book in the musical oh, in the musical version. Yeah. Um, okay. That's why I don't remember it. Uh, sidebar: The Tinker like scared the shit out of me when I was a little kid. I find that I find that dude really disturbing. But in this version, we also see that uh, he has hired this guy who works for him, uh, Mr. Wilkinson, to pose as Arthur Slugworth, like his greatest adversary, so that he can essentially like gaslight these kids into participating in a morality lesson. Like that, I find really interesting. So also. 
in the world of this movie, there's no reason why he couldn't also have hired the tinker. You know what I mean? Like he could be pulling this big charade on everybody from the beginning. And like you do see if you watch the way Gene Wilder plays scenes, like when the camera's not on him, when you're being encouraged to look at, say, like the kids and their parents in the foreground, if you watch Gene Wilder, uh, the, the his nonverbal reactions to these kids, the way he's reacting to the other kids versus the way he's reacting to Charlie. I agree whether or not it was there explicitly in the text. Like you can kind of tell that, yeah, he's he's hoping he can see something in Charlie immediately, like a, a fundamental decency. He's not spoiled. Like he knows what it is to want for things. So he knows the value of having those things, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I do think you could look at this movie and very much see that. Um, yeah, like it had to be Charlie from the beginning. And so when... Charlie breaks the rules when when it's like, oh, my God. So like you, you stole my drinks. You fucked up my ceiling. You could have died. And like, even though you, you signed the thing, like the, the optics on that wouldn't be great for me and stuff. That is devastating to him as well. And so you actually like you, you go through that low a little bit with Wonka, too. And so when Charlie kind of like closes that deal, returns the gobstopper, passes the morality test. It's this massive moment of elation because in that moment, like the two of them together, they both get everything they want. And suddenly Charlie has a future, but now Wonka is complete. Wonka is no longer just that half a man. And like, this is shit that I did not really think about at all when I was a child, but I find it uh, incredibly profound, like shockingly profound for a movie geared towards younger people and also moving in a way that I, I don't think I was quite prepared for like this. I don't know about you guys, if this did it for you at all, like, it's like James, you've seen this movie a thousand times, but it got me. I was not ready for it, but like this movie, like actually got me a little bit, like, especially at the end where it's like both of these people are, are full now. You know what I mean? Like both of these people have that fullness, that thing that they were missing the entire time. Like they have purpose and they have a sense of completion. Anyway, that was a lot of, that was a lot of jawing. All right, it's nap time now. <laughs> so for me, as a, as a parent who has kids and grandparents, I'm a grandparent also, I see this movie a little differently also because now it's like, he's testing these kids. You want to see what they're going to do. You want to see if they're going to survive. You want to see, and that's kind of what it is like as a parent. You know, I raised two daughters and you're kind of curious to see how they're going to turn out. You do everything you can to be there for them and show them away and you figure out what's going to happen. Now I got grandchildren and I'm watching them grow up and see how they're going to turn out and their personalities. And so I viewed this film the last few years a little differently. Like I said, I've watched it continuously, you know, off and on, reoccurring since it came out. I see a lot. I'm like, oh, like you want to believe in these children. You want to believe that there's a, there's good in some of these children. You want to believe that they're going to make it through and not disappoint you. And when they do disappoint you, it does feel bad. But then the kid in me goes, well, of course, that whole that whole burping scene, the bubble scene, which was added into the movie, um, was like something that kind of had happened for Charlie. Charlie had to have a moment. He had to have a moment of being kind of a little naughty himself. But the even way they showed him, he wasn't naughty, naughty. Uh, he was just like a little naughty, a little mischievous. Um, and there was still some comedy in that. But I, I, I did, I have viewed it as I've seen this movie maybe three or four times in the last few years, a little differently on the adult scale. Just going, wow, I get it. Like, he really wants to believe that there's some good kids out there who will take over the kingdom. And that's a very parent parental thing to think of. Like, once I get older, they'll take the house or they'll take my business or they'll do that. Like, you kind of hope that will happen. So I did, I have started to see it slightly in a different context than I did when I was younger. Because that scene, I think, I believe that scene was added in, I mean, that scene was not in the book, that was added into the film. The fizzy lifting drinks? Yeah. And the yeah. other thing I think that is really interesting about that scene too, is it is not 
Charlie's idea. It's actually Grandpa no. Joe's idea to steal them, and Charlie kind of goes along with it. But I think left to his own devices, Charlie would never have taken it. But he had to go along with it. But he had to show Charlie. He, he is a child, so he had to show him have some kind of fun. Right. They can't be just, he's a goody two-shoes, and the rest of the kids are just bad. They still showed him in a good light, but it's just like he had, they had, they had to do something. He had, they had to add him in there somewhere. And that's why Charlie survived. Something they leave out of this movie that is in the book and that is in the Burton version is when they are leaving the factory in the elevator at the end, uh, they see yes. the other kids leaving, like, you know, little worse for the wear, yeah. but alive, kind of being sent home with like their lifetime supply of chocolate. You don't see, nope. you don't see these kids uh, leave at the end of this movie. You just have to take Wonka's mm. word for it, that they're fine. The, I, these they're children are dead, dead. Folks, they're not Let me tell dead. you, that uh, Veruca Salt burned up in the it. furnace, Augustus was melted down yeah. into fudge, Mike TV, Mike, Mike is alive, but he lives in his mom's yeah. purse now. No, he said, as as he was going in the, into his office, he says, they'll be returned back to normal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he says it, but Wilder himself was like, I want people not to know whether I'm lying. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's at you. That's how he justifies murder. Um, I want to go back a little bit. You had mentioned the production design. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit in that uh, Harper Goff, he is the production designer and... Like you can you can tell that everything that he did was done with such intention and specificity. Like from the moment that you enter the factory, it's like entering a whole new world. You have the the golden hands that hold people's hanger or that are basically hangers, but they're alive. You have the room that gets smaller. You have the room that essentially you walk into and then you exit into a different section of the factory it's so like fairy tale like and otherworldly it it really feels like you are stepping into another world you have to also think about all these because he came a little later than c.s lewis and later than lewis carroll i mean those are the ones that were you know duking it out for each other and also the guy who did the golden compass and that kind of series you have to remember again these are all based on kids going to other worlds and learning something, right? That there's a journey. Everybody has a journey. That's yeah. the same thing with Willy Wonka. It's, there was a journey they had to go through. And so to visually put that on screen, they had to match it on some level. And I think they did a great job. And I said, as a kid, loved it. Um, it was bright and shiny. And you you wish you were in that lake of chocolate. And you wish you could just get buttercup. I mean, as a kid, I used to think this stuff when I was a kid. I used to wish I could have candy flowers and things like that. I mean, it's just amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean they, they visually captured all of that yeah the chocolate room or like the the candy garden uh i feel like is every kid's dream and the fact that like i think they said a third of the stuff in the room was edible just because everyone's first time in that room with the exception of gene wilder was captured on film it's that moment when everyone walks in and he's like slowly leading them down the stairs so all of those reactions are genuine in that if you entered this room that essentially you could eat, I I would never leave. I'd be like, cool, guys, this is where my part of the, the tour ends. But it also is just a, uh, I, I would say like a production marvel that the boat, the Wonka-mobile, all of these things were practically created and they had to be designed and brought to life, which I thought was... Uh, I would imagine a Herculean feat. Like even Harper Goff, 
he was like, yeah, you know, you can't just go to a store and be like, give me a weird chocolate machine. <laughs> like you have to figure out like what the components of the chocolate machine are. And like, you have to put it together and, and he approached it with the idea that effectively uh, Wonka is just like another Rube Goldberg where he's just creates overly complicated machines for very simple tasks. But, you know, like he, he's essentially creating a Disneyland largely for himself, right? Because he hasn't let people into this factory for years and years and years. So you talk about him making these overly elaborate contraptions for no reason whatsoever. Every time they get to the gobstopper machine. And I thought about this when I was a kid watching this movie as well. The gobstopper machine starts producing and, you know, it's all under different sheets. You got a thing that goes up and down. You got things that kind of go like, you know, arms that go in and out and stuff. And even as a kid, I was like, there's nothing under there. This is bullshit. He's lying to these kids to be all like, Ooh. <laughs> and there's a lot of that shit because like, really that is like the boat ride is completely in theory, probably completely unnecessary. I would imagine that tunnel is, is, is maybe uh, uh, two yards long. Um, and it's just to fuck with people, right? Like the, uh, what is it? The Wonka mobile that gets every, like, I think is there to sort of sterilize and sanitize everybody before they go into that big TV area. Completely unnecessary. You just put everybody into a booth, but he thinks it's funny. And that's like, you know, everything in the factory is that even the stuff that ostensibly serves a direct purpose, like the, the chocolate waterfall that churns his, his chocolate, like mixes, it gets it exactly right and stuff. There's no fucking reason he has to do that you know what i mean like he just does that because he thinks it's funny and so yes it's very much like disneyland in as much as most of what the factory seems designed to do is not produce candy like yes it does that but most of the things it does it, it seems really designed uh, for a sort of theme park experience which like not for nothing I feel like, you know, obviously like money is not something Wonka has to worry about, but like that's, if you ever fell on hard times, that's what you do. You just ch start charging for sort of a factory theme park experience and shit like that. It would be like uh, the, the, the universal backlot tour and shit like that, only with more sugar, but also, and this is neither here nor there. Maybe they go into this in the book. They never talk about where Wonka's money comes from and of course it's not really germane to the story but now as an adult looking at everything that Wonka has uh, I sit and I wonder to myself like where did he come up with all of this loot uh, because I feel like there's potentially some shifty especially the wilder version I feel like there's some shifty stuff like I feel like the Depp Wonka is maybe too childlike to like have some seedy dealings in his past and stuff but like for all we know Gene Wilder's Wonka is like is like the fucking Tommy Wiseau of this shit it's like where does money come from how old <laughs> is he his background makes no fucking sense he's hanging out with people that are way younger than he is and it's a little questionable and stuff like that um, but yeah everything is largely a facade, right? Like everything is misdirection, like right down to how Wonka enters the story. Everything is about look over here while I try and do this. But yeah, like I, I definitely got a hardcore Disneyland vibe from that factory every time I watched it. So, you know, to, to what you were saying, it's all smoke and mirrors, basically. Like there is something true inside of it, but so much obfuscation in the interest of, well, how do I you know, like he's so used to controlling every facet of his reality. So it's like, okay, well, if I'm inviting people into my reality, how do I make sure there's enough misdirection so that even with these variables, I am still essentially in control of every element here? I kind of disagree with everything you said. So 
Here's how, how I get a film. Here's how I get a Here's how I get a film. I think I think you guys are looking at it so a whole other way. I feel like I never in my entire 51 years thought about how he made the money. I never thought. I mean, to this day, you said I was like, I never even thought about that. I never even. Thought I mean, about it's not that important. I know, but I'm, but I'm just telling you, I never <laughs> thought of that before. So it's funny you say that. My thing always was he must have had some heartache in his. I went. I went emotional. So I think I feel like his childhood was probably not the greatest. So that's why he created this world. And I feel like the world he created is not because he's doing it just because he wants for shits and giggles. He's doing it because he wanted to create something to fill a void probably in his life. That's how I always mm-hmm. have seen it. So he created this whole world, almost like a winter wonderland, but with candy, that is that's sustained. The Oompa are like his family. You know, they are they, well, they're kind of also his like slaves, that's another story. Um, but that's but but he, but he, but in his brain. He, he surrounded himself with people who are going to help fulfill his fantasies. And his fantasies are this magical world of candy and chocolate. And so all the contraptions, all different things are there to facilitate the, the factory from working in these very inventive ways. So I see it totally different. I see it that these are all, this is not misdirection. It's all, it's all out there, actually. It's all there transparent. It's all there for you. But his actions with these five kids when it comes to this particular chore, that's where I think is where he, because he, obviously Jim Alder said this, where he kind of did the the two-faced thing, so to speak. It was like both. But I feel like the factory itself, I think it was probably built out of being hurt, being built out of being, and I could be completely wrong, obviously. I mean, I don't know what Roald Dahl was thinking. Um, but I just feel like that's, that it came from a place of the inner child for him. That's what he mm-hmm. wanted to bring back the inner child. And so this place gives him that in the form of candy and chocolate, which is a child thing. That's like a major, other than ice cream, candy and chocolate are major food groups for children. That's universal. Right. Um, and I feel like this whole wonder, this whole fortress, he built a fortress for himself because the outside world is fucked up, basically. Right. So he built his own world. Now, saying it's, now saying it's not fucked up in his own world is another story. But, you know, but I feel like that, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of things where villains don't think they're villains. Right. It's one of those kind of things. I'm not saying he's a villain, but just saying that. So I said, whole month, that thing of they had a hard childhood or a hard upbringing. They're justified in feeling where they feel. And in some ways, they are very transparent in what they feel and what their agenda is. But I feel like him, I just feel like his, the factory and stuff was for real. And it was, and it was all built on this kind of, you know, trying to escape the, the, the life he didn't have and create the life he wanted. And then. Now he's done with it. Now he's like he's graduating from it. And so now he has to find the right successor who will really take it, who will seriously take care of the place. Right. Because that's yeah. when he shows him the tour of the place afterwards. It's like, come on, let me show you this. Let's get over here. And, this, and so he was so excited. It's like, he doesn't want him just to, you know, play around this place. It's for real. He's, he's gifting him this whole world um, that I think, and I feel like maybe Walker was like, well, I fulfilled what I needed now. So now I can move on to something else. So I, that's, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Okay. I feel like both of your your perspectives could be valid. Um, <laughs> don't Well again, we don't, we're not rolled all again, we're not rolled all. We don't know where we don't know what his thoughts were, you know, obviously. But I do want to address because it's a perfect segue into slaves. <laughs> I'm a slave for you. For you. <laughs> boom 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 boom. Uh so the so here are yeah. my racial complaints about this movie. We have established uh, that none of the 
five tickets went to anywhere but uh, Europe and North America. Yeah. Uh, why? Um, because also, I, I guess the fucked up part about that is that, um, you know, coca beans are typically harvested sometimes by child slaves in Africa and South America. So it's almost like you could read into it that Wonka was like, mm, I don't want any darkies to uh, own my uh, own my thing, especially if they're harvesting my coca beans. But also, so um, I guess in the book, the Oompa Loompas are explicitly slaves. They, they keep the line in the movie where a kid asks if the Oompa Loompas are made of chocolate. <laughs> Which, um, if in the other context, they act, like it makes sense because they're they're from Africa and they have brown skin. So the kid's like, "Oh boy, I'm a white kid and I don't understand race." And so they're like, "Is they're made of chocolate?" And like the movie goes out of its way to make them seem like more alien, but I think explicitly they are made to be slaves, and they were essentially imperialized where he's like oh man they were living like savages and then i saved them from their savage life and i, I domesticated these monsters um and it makes me sad <laughs> yeah what, what's, fu what's funny because you know you know Roldal wrote an original book for instance, and of course he, and also if people know this he wrote two sequels well one sequel and the third one was almost he started writing it and it happened charlie in the glass elevator and then charlie in the white house that was something that's not not known very much. Oh, I and did not know the White House one. That's they have they actually have a snippet of that. So you can find it um, where you started writing it. There, originally, there was fifteen children originally, so it was cut. There was a, so a lot of things were cut when when the final book came out. So now, okay. do I know if the kids were from around the world? I have no idea. Now um, I'm gonna try to address that first. So this is book because when when Roald Dahl wrote it, of course. We weren't fully recognized as citizens, obviously, and that you know parts right. of Africa and South America were considered savages. Um, that, right. that was that whole imagery was still very popular then. So I think that's why it didn't happen. Now, why in 1971 did they not just include that? They just they just didn't. But again, 71, we're still fighting. We're in the middle of civil rights movement, so we still weren't forward thinking. So for me, I get the time period. I guess I'm able to. For me, being a black person myself, you don't know all black people. Um, I'm able to separate it on a sense because I just know that the Oompa Loompa thing. Yeah. Also, with that thing was always strange. The one funny part of the Tim Burton movie was it was one Oompa Loompa doing everything. That made me laugh. He showed up everywhere, made me laugh. It was kind of right. it was kind of like his take on not having slaves, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yes, I always felt their skin color was very suspect. But then again, you know, you look at I don't know, like Wizard of Oz. They had the they had midgets and dwarfs went doing in that movie i mean I, I i feel like i don't know that time period not saying it was right i guess or wrong i guess i just kind of yeah. i've forgiven it on some level just kind of well it's just you know kind of how i mean i could be wrong just how it is i guess right and i'm not trying to take a dump on a thing that you love yeah no 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 but but, but it's important no, but it's important you bring it up i mean i agree with it. i mean it's not, you're the first person to bring this up obviously people have brought this up i just i guess i just took the time period of everything the film that'd be my criticism the film could have done a few changes but the Oompa Loompas were a very big part of the the book so they couldn't really do anything they couldn't right the way they were written they had to show them the way they were written i guess they they showed them being kind of happy i guess <laughs> they tried to do that and they were like they were happy slaves right of course <laughs> um you know i mean that, that kind of thing so i have to laugh about that a little bit but i mean it's it's a 
it's one of the few things that is kind of a sore spot I know for many and I, I understand where you're coming yeah. from. Yeah. Was the Hayes Code in effect in the in seventy one? No, Hayes Code was, I think, gone by the end of the 50s. Because part of the Hayes Code was like, if you depict a, uh, an enslaved person, they have to be very happy to work. Right. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was affected by that or not. But yeah, I mean, I just think, and I'm also approaching it from a you know 21st century perspective. I got my woke hat on. So, you know, I can't be like, oh man, why weren't these white people considering me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but you know what's, what's funny? Well, you, know, you bring up a very current and good point. Because art is art, first of all. You know, I'm an artist. You guys are artists. We're all artists. And I don't believe in censoring anybody. I just think that, you know, you... And when it comes to past art, which is... This, that's been the big thing right now. The cancel culture of Gone with the Wind. The cancel culture of this and that. And taking the blackface out of the Golden Girls episode. And there's a lot of things that I feel like we're going a little too far on, of course. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, and trust me, I'm black. I understand all the stuff. I understand all the stuff. But I always try. I try to look at some of the things that came out at a certain time, but at the time period. I'm not saying that I excuse everything or think it's wonderful, but go okay. Well, I see why this story was made. It was made at this time. It was written at this time period. That's why I feel like Huckleberry Finn. Don't take out the N word. That was part of the time period. I know you don't want to hear it and everything, but that was part of the time period. That's part of the story. Um, there's I think there's certain things I just think should be kind of, you know, looked at with a closer eye. Maybe it could be a teachable moment. So right. if you watch the Loompas, then teach the kids, like, okay, so they basically were slaves in this, in this movie. But, like, this is what, you know, like, there's, there's things you can do to kind of piggyback off of something that's been an art fixture for years. Um, right. And I think that, so I, so I think what you're saying is a really valid thing to bring up because people are bringing this up now for all kinds of different, things and some things yes were horrifically horrible we all we, we all could agree that shouldn't be on film but there's some things where it's just it's that it's that time period yeah i mean and you kind of there are like two sides of what you brought up in that yes i think that things should be contextualized as opposed to erased because if you erase it you're basically uh pretending it didn't happen whereas like if you let it happen and you give it context for why it was bad, then you not only validate that it existed, but you also, as you said, give people uh, the knowledge to move forward and be better. You brought up the blackface in Golden Girls. And I think that like some of it right now is mostly to placate people who are interested in actual like change and to be like oh but we did this thing and it's like but i'm still dying right, 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 exactly. from police and they're like "Ooh, but we changed a tv show and it's like that tv show isn't gonna stop uh denying us from getting low right, right exactly <laughs> exactly i agree with you on that completely but but i, but I do want to say that i mean I, i'll say it for a third time I just think it's very, you brought up something that is very important that is coming up right now. And I think we need to look at it a certain way. And if, and, and I, I just think, if, you know, this was 1971. This book was written back, you know, turn of the century or whatever. It was written back a long time ago. Um, so it's like, this is this is what he came up with. And it's art. I mean, it's, it's art. It's his art. This is what Roald Dahl came up with. And so I think we have to look at it with a certain eye. Speaking of modern perspectives as applied to the Oompa Loompas, when they're introduced and obviously kind of the way they 
design them aesthetically, you know, these kind of big, bright colors that really, really pop. And uh, they got the green hair and they got the orange faces. So this time watching the movie, uh, when first exposed to the Oompa Loompas, one of the members of the group says, you know, kind of loudly and pointedly, well, who, you know, I've never seen somebody with an orange face before. And I tell you, gents, it triggered me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the secret third book is... It goes to the White House! Holy yes, shit! Yes, it goes to the White House. Well, actually, Cyber, so you just mentioned the, uh, the sequel again. So, like, uh, James, you mentioned having read um, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. I am super bummed that uh, we have not yet gotten an adaptation of this book. Because th- as wild and out there as the first one is, in the sequel, they take the elevator to space and they go to a space hotel that's being infested with like aliens, but it's a species. I think that was like hunting the Oompa Loompas back on earth. It's bonkers. And I want that movie. And it's a shame that we no longer have Gene Wilder because it's never too late. We could have like de-aged him digitally, could have Irish manned him and we could have gotten our, our great glass elevator movie. I look at it as a very chopper. Again, this is seventies also. And you know, there are a lot of things that probably would be offensive today to people that were children's television. I mean, it just, I mean, they used to call me Chaka because my hairline was like was like Chaka on on Land of the Lost. I used to get like, called all that all the time, but I never thought of anything really bad about it. I just had a, he had a kind of widow speak, and I had a widow speak, so it was kind of like this weird thing. But like you look at him, it's like he looks kind of Negroid over there. Like what's going on with Chaka? Like I mean, it's like you know, like, we just didn't you didn't think about it. Like you just didn't. I mean, it was like I I saw this old person. Like I was going that's a different time period, but it really was a different time period. Um, not saying it was better or worse. It's, that it's just that there are things that. That we just didn't look at them that way. We just we just really didn't. Now, see, I can't watch a Warner Brothers cartoon anymore because they're all for horrifically horrific and racist and homophobic and transphobic. I can't watch one to save my life now. I'm like, I'm like, but they're all yeah. horrible. I can't watch Except them. Except for Space Jam. <laughs> well, I'm talking about the ones in the 30s and 40s, I mean, <laughs> like the, the originals. But you know, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's like, but so I, but there's things that I can still watch and go, you know, I mean. A little kids are going to notice they're slaves, really, or notice they, they have their orange faces. They're not, not going to notice anything. And I think the same thing with the with the Wizard of Oz and all the, you know, the, the flying monkeys were black. <laughs> you know, King Kong, black man. I mean, it's all these things you can look at now and see the, 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 the text of what society was saying with some of these stories. Some of them I can let go, and some I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know. Yeah. So we are running short on time, guys. So oh my god, I know. Oh my god, you're you're the final two. Uh, see your way out. I have lots of business. I'm a businessman, <laughs> and I do business. So, uh, do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, well, number one, I just you guys did a great job with this show for the last three years, and I've been on your show many Aww. times. Uh, thanks for letting me come on your show and talk about whatever the fuck I want to talk about. Um, and engaging me in the conversation, engaging others. And I think, you know, people don't understand that doing podcasting, you don't just wake up and do a podcast. There's a whole lot of planning goes into it, technical stuff that goes into it, post-production, pre-production, getting guests uh, is not always the easiest thing. And, and the time periods of when you film and when you record, it's a lot of work, people. And I want to congratulate you guys on, you should feel good. You did, you did you, three years of a nice podcast and you can say you can stand by and stand behind and stand beside. So I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you, man. Aww. That's really sweet. You're, you're sweetie. Well, I'm, I'm going to go in the corner and cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lex, 
Do you have Do you have any final thoughts before we You know, go? I got a couple couple random little odds and ends uh, real quick that I want to hit. One, talk about this movie, sort of uh, different parts of this movie sticking out to us in different ways that uh, maybe are more pronounced now that we're a little bit older. I, I must have picked up on this in the past, but it really hit me this time. For my money, I think the darkest joke in the movie is when Veruca falls down the garbage chute and then, uh, you know, Wonka says, oh, maybe she's she's just stuck in the pipe. And so her dad jumps into the tube after her and, uh, you know, they're both bad eggs. And Grandpa Joe kind of quietly says to Charlie, well, it looks like Mr. Salt got exactly what he always wanted. And Charlie says, what's that? He says, Veruca went first. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> And I love it. I love it. Uh, Okay, two last quick things. One, um, when I was looking up some of the cast, like I was really, if you hadn't guessed, sort of taken with the performance of the actor who played Mr. Wilkinson, a.k.a. our sort of foe Slugworth. This is an actor whose name is Gunter Meisner. And uh, one, I discovered we share a birthday. But more fascinatingly. He is known, obviously, yes, for playing this this role in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but outside of this role, apparently most known for playing Hitler in several different things. One of the ones that stuck out to me is a 1982 movie called Ace of Aces, where he plays not only Hitler, but apparently Hitler's twin sister, uh, I think like Angela Hitler as well. So I'm going to be tracking this movie down. And if you're missing out, I think I'm starting my new three year long podcast that's going to be exclusively about Ace of Aces and this dude playing Hitler and Lady Hitler. That's crazy. Um, so that I thought was nuts. So, okay, the last thing I suppose, um, and it can, it can sort of, uh, James, tie into the very kind of lovely sentiments you just shared with us. I want to just real quick talk about the very end uh, one more time because I think my big takeaway this time, especially with the world being how it is right now, Um, I think things in part are the way they are because we don't keep an eye towards what we are leaving behind, what our legacy is going to be, right? And ultimately, the the final exchange of the movie, you know, Wonka tells Charlie, not only am I giving you the factory, but your entire family can come as well. And like, this is a completely new life for you. This is, this is everything. These are wildest dreams come true, right? And he says to Charlie, you know, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. And, and he says, what happened? And Willy Wonka says he lived happily ever after. Now, forget for a second that that's not actually how happiness works. Um, Wonka's talking about himself. You know what I mean? He's not talking about Charlie in that moment. He's talking about himself yep. because everything, everything that Wonka yep. wanted in his life, especially at that point, was, you know, think about the the cut in half production design. He wanted, what would make him whole? It's legacy. It's leaving something behind for the next generation, something pure, something positive. And, and knowing that, you know, it's, it's not an accident that the parents of these kids in the story are why the kids are so rotten. You know what I mean? Like they did not do their job essentially, you know, with their legacy, with what they're leaving behind, with how they're guiding the next generation. And even though Charlie's family comes from nothing, what they have instead of luxury, what they have instead of money, what they have instead of all this material bullshit is true love and true perspective and and true, you know, th- th- a desire to actually bring good into the world. And that's everything Wonka always wanted is when it's my time, I can go knowing, feeling confident that what I left behind is A, in good hands, but more importantly, is still the exact same force for good that I intended it 
to be. And so I came away from from watching Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory this time, really my first time watching it as an adult, thinking a lot about that, about everything that's happening right now, about how we got here and about how we're going to move forward. And I think it's more important now than it's ever been to think about legacy and to think about what it is that we're teaching people that come after us and what we're leaving behind both with them and for them as well. And so that's my that's my sort of big final thought about my experience with this movie. Oh, with that, I think it's time to start wrapping up. James, thank you. Thank you for joining us. This has been so fun. So if someone wanted to find you, where could they do so? What are you working on? What do you got for us? Well, you can find me where all James Law Juniors are sold at James Law Jr. and all social media platforms, literally everywhere, TikTok, everything, James Law Jr. I have an online network called JLJ Media. So that's audio and video on YouTube. You can just type in JLJ Media and I have over 30 programs ranging from Star Wars to soaps to insurance to life coaching to everything in between. So go there and check us out. Like, subscribe, follow. Just you know, see what's going on. There might be something for you there. Um, I also have a division of books. I have the really short story project. I have over 35 books out there written by me and others under my under my um, my watch. Uh, you can go to Amazon and get all of those books. They're all out there. I have a new Halloween book coming out called They Called Her Pumpkin. It's a Halloween mystery. Mm. That'll be out in another week or so. Then also I have music. I have all this music out there. I have over seven albums, three EPs. Uh, on any streaming service, I have a SoundCloud page. Where is it at? James Lott Jr. Uh, but you can find me on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever. Um, and my last album was called Songs from a Dark Place. That was my last album. And it's out uh, out now. Uh, I have some new songs coming out for Christmas. So like, stay tuned for that. But you can follow me just anywhere. Just type in James Lott Jr. in any service, platform, YouTube, and you'll find my stuff. Awesome. Uh, Lex, where can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael, and I also do another podcast with my partner Marianne Ramish. We call it Friends with Benefits. On this podcast, we take a look at the massive pop culture juggernaut that is the television series Friends that ran for like seventy years. A uh, lot of episodes. They're all streaming on HBO Max, and you can watch it along with us. We are uh, on a little bit of a mid-season hiatus right now, but we're in the middle of season two. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, but Marianne is a very big fan of the show Friends. I am not. I'm really not. But I'm having a real good time talking to her about it. We talk about it from a critical perspective and from a fan perspective. We are breaking down the entire dang show. That's a lot of content. So come join us. It's called Friends with Benefits. You can find that wherever you find your podcast. And uh, Tari J, if people are so inclined, if people want to come for you, where can they do that? Hey, bro, you come for the king. You better go to Twitter <laughs> at Tari J. T-E-R-I-J-A-Y. But you best not miss that follow button <laughs> That's good. Uh, but most importantly you can find this podcast at missing outcast that's m-i-s-s-i-n-g-o-u-t-c-a-s-t uh, and make sure to keep joining us for our monthly theme which is goodbye halcyon days next week we're going to be talking about a very fall-oriented theme. We're going to be talking about fall ASMR, Ooh, okay. but ASMR in general. We're going to hear some crinkles. We're going to hear some tinkles. Oh, boy. We're going to hear all the good things. So uh, make sure to tune in. And before we go, once again, I have to thank James Lott Jr. for being a wonderful friend and a great guest. Thank you. Thank you.
Uh, nice. Okay, uh, great. Thank you. What's going on? Thank you. How do we end this show? How do we like, end it? Yeah, I know. What's going on? Uh, so keep joining us through the rest of this month and uh, keep being great, everybody. Until then, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. What is a legacy? <laughs> it's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see.